Well, as I said, we have been working our way through this psalm, looking thought by thought at this incredible metaphor in this incredible poem that David pens to describe a relationship with God when he is your God. We all know that God is the one true God. He is God. But there's a relationship that happens in our lives through Jesus where we get to say, God, you are my God. The way David says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's this metaphor that David uses coming from personal experience as a shepherd. He knew first the nature and tendency of sheep, but he also knew the great responsibility and qualifications to be a shepherd. He knew also the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. David, who was once a shepherd boy, pens this poem describing his connection to God as his shepherd. David as his sheep. And he's describing life under the shepherd's care. That's really what we're trying to get after here. Not just to know the psalm, but to know the shepherd in a real personal way. For us to know in a life experience way what it's like to live under the shepherd's care. Not just in word or tongue, but in deed and truth, right? We want to really get the most out of what God has for us as his Sheep. And so, again, verse by verse, seeing what this looks like. Last week, we broke into the second half of verse 3 and focused on this verse, which says, He leads me, my shepherd leads me, in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And this morning, we're going to look at this verse again. Going to look at it again. Uh, Believe it or not, I didn't get to say all that I wanted to say last week. And so this is kind of a part two to what we looked at last week. When we saw this verse last week, we observed it as one of the main roles of a shepherd to sheep. You see, we know that uh, that sheep are provided for by their shepherd. We know that sheep are dependent on their shepherds to give them what they can't have on their own. Water, sufficient rest, protection from enemies. We talked about kind of the more larger sheep that get flipped onto their back, and I've fallen, and I can't get up, life alert kind of situation. And so the shepherd will come and restore the sheep back on their feet. We've been observing this truth about a sheep's dependency on shepherds, and also our own dependency on God to give us what we could never get on our own. But what's particularly interesting about the way that David words God's provision here and in the previous verses is it describes how a shepherd leads his sheep to get what they need. Not just that he kind of hocus pocus drops it in their hands, but for example, the way that a shepherd will bring sheep to drink and have their thirst satisfied is he will lead them beside still waters. He'll lead them, he'll guide them to streams that are still because they won't drink from a rushing brook. He leads them, and that's what David has been describing, how God, as our shepherd, provides for us by leading us into his provision. It's this incredible relationship, right? Sometimes with God, we, we tend to want it the other way. We tend to just kind of go, God, I'm praying for this. My hands are open. Let it rain. Pour it out, God. Your Jehovah Jireh, provide for me. But, you know, oftentimes it's not that God doesn't hear that prayer. It's often that we just don't hear his answer to the prayers. Oftentimes we say, God, provide for me. And God says, okay, come on. Come follow me. Come follow me, right? Uh, God, would you provide, Lord? 
would you provide a godly wife for me? And then you go back to Fortnite, you know. <laughs> You're on the couch. And God says, come on, let, let, let's go to church. Or you go, God, would you provide a godly night for me? Amen. All right, guys, let's hit, let's hit up Las Olas. Let's do this. All right. Let's go to the Ave. See, the Lord provides for us often in this way. He leads us into his provision. And here, as we looked last week, we observed this particular area of God's provision and of, for David, of the shepherd's provision. And this kind of stands out, I wouldn't say like a sore thumb, but it stands out kind of unusually in Psalm 23 because, you know, up until this point, David has been speaking very literally about sheep. And he's speaking very metaphorically about how it relates to us. But there's, there's this shift that happens here in this verse where David gets kind of, he goes right for the throat, right? He goes right for the kill. He says, righteousness. There's no metaphor here. He's saying that a shepherd, our shepherd, just as he leads us to be happy, just as he leads us to be healthy, our shepherd leads us also to be holy. He's concerned for our righteousness. And this is true of shepherds with sheep. It's also true of parents and children. That not only do shepherds lead sheep to get and receive and to places that they could never end up on their own, but shepherds also know what sheep need more than they do. Parents, you know what I'm talking about here, right? Come on, Dad, another lollipop. Come on, Dad, please, I just want another cup of orange juice or whatever it may be. Dad, come on, ice cream for dinner, please. Now, as a parent, you know what your children need. You know, the Bible says about God as a father that he knows what we need, even before we ask him. And it seems to be pretty clear here that God is our shepherd, that God is our father. Whether or not today we realize it, know it, or even care about it, God sees your need, my need for righteousness. Righteousness. That's what we focused on, this idea of rightness. We kind of broke down this word a little bit last week. If you want to catch, that, catch up on that, you can listen to the podcast. But th this idea of things being right and aligned with God's will, how things were before sin entered the world, how things are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. But here we are in the middle, in the meantime, and there's this pervasive wrongness to life. There's this pervasive wrongness within me, and it's manifested in so many different ways, in my inability to walk in God's plan for my life, in my inability to perfectly relate and love my neighbor and my spouse, and most of all, in my disconnect from being right with God. That's really at the heart of the matter. We talked about last week the first way that our shepherd deals with our righteousness is he deals with the righteousness that is needed for us to come to him. Because by nature, we are not righteous, but we are unrighteous. We're all caught up in self-righteousness, trying to be good enough, or we're caught up in unrighteousness, trying to find God in all the wrong places. But we saw last week our good shepherd who is so committed to our unrighteousness that he is even willing to become sin 
on our behalf. So that through this exchange that he makes with us, we can become the righteousness of God in him. This is entry to relationship with God. Um, To have this is to have eternal life. Do you have this today? We talked last week about this idea of positional righteousness, right? The idea that in Christ, it's a place that you're in. It's a standing that you're positioned in through faith in Jesus, fully apart from works, though I am fully unrighteous and broken and naturally self-righteous and prideful, on the cross, Jesus became all of my brokenness. He became all of my sin, and he willingly and lovingly traded places with me so that today you and I could stand in his righteousness. The Bible says that we are declared righteous. The language is that his righteousness is gifted to us or imputed to us or credited to our account. It's like that tax return, right, that you didn't see coming. You're like, awesome. Well, it doesn't compare to the riches of the righteousness that we've received in Jesus. Our garments are traded. Our garments of filth Jesus bore so that we could be robed in his what? righteousness. So this is positional righteousness. Now, this morning I want to take this a step further and talk about directional righteousness. Directional righteousness. Um, The idea of directional righteousness, well, it comes from the verse that we're studying here. Psalm 23 definitely describes God's commitment to our own individual positional righteousness to make us right before God through the gospel. But there is this important word that David intentionally uses here to describe our shepherd's care, and it's the five letters that make up this word, paths. Paths of righteousness. Our shepherd is not just committed to our positional righteousness. He's committed to the paths of righteousness that we today and tomorrow and forever will be walking in. That word paths there, actually in the Hebrew, it speaks of life direction. It speaks of trajectory. It speaks of kind of the full body of who you are and how you're prioritizing your life, how you're spending your money, how you're stewarding your sexuality, how you're loving your wife, how you're caring for the poor, how you're relating to God. Paths of righteousness. Um, The idea that we see in Scripture, it's kind of unavoidable. And the sad part about that is I feel like Um, we talked about this last week a little bit, there there seems to be this kind of junk drawer confusion today in the world of theology and the church in trying to get a hold on righteousness. Like, it's almost like a bar of soap in the shower kind of thing sometimes. It's like, okay. And and I understand it because um, I'm often very leery of getting up here and telling you to do things because I don't ever want you to get that jumbled up with what Jesus did for you, amen? And don't we do that all the time? And so I think today there's kind of this overreaction we have as a tendency in this church where we're like, shh, be careful. We're so leery of getting what we do wrapped up with what Jesus did that you don't hear as many sermons today about things like holiness, righteousness, obedience to God. It's like, no, no don't, talk, don't talk about directional, don't talk about my path, just talk about my position. Now, um, I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. I don't think that because the Bible doesn't think that. 
The way that God's word reveals to us this idea of righteousness in Christ is, yes, it reveals to us God's righteousness first as a position we receive in Christ. But we need to understand this, that as we are positioned in Christ, that position comes with a direction. Understand it this way. We are positioned, you are positioned in Christ towards righteousness. I had you put your finger in 2 Corinthians 5. Would you go back there? 2 Corinthians 5. I just want you to know that I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not. I read 2 Corinthians 5 this morning at 4.15 a.m. after I got Penny to sleep, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, man, this is the passage we looked at last week. We saw positional righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a fact. That's a reality. Too many of us today are trying to gain something Jesus has already given us. Righteous in Christ. Declared righteous. You don't have to work for that. You just got to receive that as a gift. Um, 2 Corinthians doesn't end in chapter 5. You move on to chapter 6. And you see that this positional righteousness we have in Christ, notice the direction now that Paul talks about with that position. 2 Corinthians, now look at the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, he says, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Look at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship, look at this, has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, idols? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, look at this direction. Ready for this? Come out from among them and be separate. Another word for that is holy, right? Says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. And what do we do here with chapter 7, verse 1? Therefore, having these promises, not um, do these things so that you can get these promises, but through Christ we have these promises. Therefore, in light of the righteousness gifted to us through Christ, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. From all filthiness, notice this, of the flesh and the spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Positioned in righteousness towards righteousness. Two things abundantly clear in scripture. As Christians, here's the good news, you're called righteous. Another thing abundantly clear in scripture, these two truths that we are also called to Righteousness. Righteousness, it's what you're called. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever question that. Don't let today, let's make this clear, don't let maybe the path of your unrighteousness cause you to question the fact that in Jesus you're righteous. Yet, let us not let the truth of our position confuse us from the direction to which we have been called. Called to Notice what he says, a kind of righteousness. Um, verse, chapter 7, verse 1 says, of the flesh and the spirit. I think that's huge, isn't it? 
Isn't there sins of the flesh and the spirit? I think with a message on righteousness, it's really easy to think about the sins of the flesh. And we should. Um, we, we should think about those sins that are outward, um, that are measurable. We, sh- we should think about kind of our, maybe our reputation or, of sin and how we're living externally, how we're going about our relationships, how we're going about our purity, how we're going about our business. But notice he says, and the spirit, right? It's almost like sin is, is subtle. It's, it's, it's give you, it gives you this chameleon nature that you can put on where you can come to church and go, I ain't got no sins of the flesh. What's up? Oh, what's your struggle? Oh, you got a sin of the flesh, brother. I can pray for you. You want to know why? Because I've overcome that sin. Deep down, you got a sin of the spirit. You're judgmental. You're a Pharisee. You might be farther from God than that person with a sin of the flesh because you think your basis of being right with God is your behavior. Yet that person who's struggling with a sin of the flesh... Think of the woman who broke that alabaster jar at Jesus' feet, and they were all looking on going, oh, prostitute. Jesus goes, that's nothing. You're a Pharisee. That's the real danger. The scariest place in life, listen, is not to not be right with God. Can I tell you why that's not the scariest place? Because the hope of the gospel brings us to be right with God. The scariest place today for you and I to be at with God is to think we're right with God when we're not. False assumption, false assurance. So the call of righteousness, directional righteousness, it doesn't just involve what I do with my hands. It does. It's it's not less than that, but it's more than that. You with me? It involves what I think in my mind and what I believe in my heart. Doesn't the Bible talk about the the importance of looking at the motives even behind what we do? So much so that like, Sometimes sin is not just doing wrong things in the, you know, I'm not doing wrong things in the flesh, but Jesus comes on this scene and he describes this kind of like new kind of sin. He's like, oh, you guys, you, you almost had it together. Let me check. We got a whole new level for you, okay? You didn't even realize that there's this other category of sin. It's called doing good things for the wrong reasons. Sins of the spirit. I'm doing this to get noticed. I'm doing this so that people will like me. They'll see my charity, okay? I'll post my devotions online, you know, that kind of thing. Like, look at me. And the call of God's word, whether it's sins of the flesh, sins of the spirit, I don't know about you, for me, it's usually both all wrapped up into this nice mess called Andrew Lundy. Um, Anyone else? Good. Don't leave me alone up here. Whatever it may be today, whatever your trajectory, we start with our position and we hear the call towards a direction. Now, I think this is a really important thing to consider here. Write this idea down. I think it's important to consider the purpose of directional righteousness, the purpose. This is really important. When considering the call to live a righteous life, um, this is huge. I think this might be one of the most valuable yet undertaught and focused on aspects of the Christian life. Uh, Today, we, we talk a lot about what to do and even how to do it. I don't know if we talk enough about why. So most of us today, we know, like generally speaking, we know that we should be obedient to Jesus because he's our master. We follow him. Most of us know when we're tempted to sin, our conscience bears witness, the Holy Spirit, when we see that exit sign, that way of escape, you don't need me to tell you, you should take the way of escape. We know it. The Spirit of God convicts us, the Bible says, of righteousness. But why? Why 
should you and I live righteous lives? And I think the, um, the answer to this may change how you approach this. Maybe it's going to change um, the vicious cycle you've been on of trying to be righteous because of the reason. Now, I want us to see this. Psalm 23 tells us the purpose. What is it? It's for his namesake. Let's see this. Let's see this. Look at this. He leads us in paths of righteousness. God calls me in the direction of righteous living for the sole purpose of the sake of his name. Righteousness, why? For the glory of the name of Jesus. Now, maybe you've just heard that your whole life to where that doesn't mean anything to you anymore. What is David saying here? What what is David talking about? He says, his shepherd leads us to be righteous in the paths and the direction of righteousness for his namesake. David is talking here about first, in in a basic sense, he's talking about the reputation of a shepherd, right? Like, how do you know a shepherd's a good shepherd? Because he gives you his business card, because he's got that dope IG going on, and he's like, yo, shepherd number one, Boca, hit me up, you know, motivational talk, hey, this is Andrew here, talking about shepherding, you know, like, (laughs) if I get another one of those sponsored ads, I'm going to throw my phone out the window, okay? I mean, what, what makes a shepherd a, a good shepherd? And, and the answer is, well, it's, it's the condition of a sheep. This is a sobering call to me as the pastor of this church. Because there comes a point where after a couple of years, if there are pervasive sins in our church i got to be really dependent on Jesus, the chief shepherd of this church. Can we remember that? I'm not the senior pastor. I'll be the lead pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. But i got to make sure I'm owning the call to go, Lord, by your grace, will you help me shepherd solace? Because I know that the condition of our church can eventually be reflective over me. It's the same in every sphere, right? Eventually, you stop looking at your business and pointing at the staff. You start looking in the mirror, right? Your family, dad's. I don't know how many times i got to come back to this square one. I love to be frustrated with what's wrong in my family. I hate admitting that it's probably my fault. That's hard. But there's this principle of leadership and the call to where if you want to know the condition of a shepherd, if you really want to know the, the integrity and the care and the qualification of his role, look at his sheep because those are going to be the witnesses to his name, his reputation. That's what a name is, right? The name in our culture is something that either sounds cool, is familial and generational, um, or it's a celebrity. It's like, we're going to name you Bruno Mars Lundy. You know, I don't know. That would be weird. Um, But culturally speaking, come on, how many of you guys went to book club this summer? God has a name. And God's name means something more than a title. It has to do with his character, Yahweh, it's who he is, his attributes, his name. So righteousness for his namesake is a righteous life that gives credence and credit and glory to my shepherd. So my righteous life is not for my own sake, it's for his namesake. Let me back up and maybe give some alternatives. Um, Your righteous life that you're called to live is not for your pride's sake. So that you can look in the mirror and like what you see. Wow. Looking good. Pretty righteous. 
Not for you to come to church and compare yourself to the people next to you and think that by some means that's how you're going to be right with God. It's not for your pride's sake. Um, Righteousness is not for your namesake. It's not for my namesake. It's not to make a reputation for myself. Have you met that guy? They are righteous. Have you heard the way they're doing? That's not our motive to be righteous. It's not what man thinks about me or what I think about me at all. Nor is, this is huge, nor is the call to righteousness based on your acceptance sake. Well, maybe if I live a righteous life, God will eventually accept me. The church will eventually accept me. Um, Those are lousy motivators. They will gas you up for a season, for a time, but you'll burn out. You'll give up on God, okay? The only lasting, eternal, sufficient motivation for your righteousness and my righteousness is the glory of God. For your namesake, God. So that when people see my life, they can see my good works and they glorify my Father in heaven. namesake. We, we see this in the Bible, that God is concerned with what we could call the fame of his name, the fame of God's name. Um, we see, I, I want, would, wanted to share this with you, rather than turn there, um, actually, turn there. Go to Ezekiel 36. Bet you didn't think you're going to turn to Ezekiel this morning. Go to Ezekiel 36. God's passion for his name. This is a constant theme all throughout scripture. Uh, we, see, we see God having this motive of doing things, again, for the glory of his name. Uh, a great example here in Ezekiel 36. You there? Cool. Let's look at verse 16. It says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, look at this, they defiled their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman and her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. Verse 19 says, I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. Notice verse 20. When they came to the nations, wherever they went... They profaned my holy name. When, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. Look at verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. I do not do this. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to promise that despite your turning your back on me, I'm always going to pursue and love you. But notice this. I do not do this, verse 22, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake. You know the primary motive for for why God does things in this world is for his own glory? And right now you're kind of struggling with that. You're like, well, that's kind of selfish. Did you know that the greatest gift that God could give you is his glory? Understand this, that anything that is for God's glory is for our good. 
Any and everything that is for God's glory is a gift because it's for our good. God knows that we will be empty living for any other glory. It's a gift. It's a generous thing, not a selfish thing for God to call us into his glory. It's a call into abundant life. It's a call into ultimate joy. It's a call into living for the glory of his name. So that when we become Christians, right, we recognize this, that, that God is, as we read there, right, God is concerned for his name. And we see this. We see that even how God saved us, like if you're needing to just get brushed up on what Jesus has done for you, we've been talking a lot about that. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great place to go. Uh, there's this long, beautiful run-on sentence where Paul, he lists, basically he describes the spiritual bank account of a Christian, of all that's been deposited into our lives. He, he lists being adopted, being made holy, becoming uh, righteous, um, being redeemed, being forgiven. He talks about all these things, but three times he says that it's all to the praise of his glory. It's to the praise of his glory. It's to the praise of his grace. And so we become Christians and we start to realize this, that there's no higher name than the name of Jesus. That the, the glory of God's name is God's greatest priority and something starts to shift in my heart to where it becomes my greatest priority. So Jesus, for example, he says, so here's how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the, that's the cry of a Christian. You saved me for the, for the glory of your name. God, may through my life your name be lifted high. May you be glorified. Uh, contrary to the tendency of humans. Remember the Tower of Babel? Remember that whole mess? That didn't work out. A lot of confusion after that. You know, Genesis 4, man's going to turn. God, we don't need you. We're sufficient of ourselves. It's not about your name. And Genesis 4 says uh, in verse 11 that they came together and said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. And a tower whose top is the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves. And too many of us today are still caught on that trap. It's, and whether it's our righteousness or our business model, at the end of the day, it's for the glory of our own name. And when you come to Christ, that transformation takes place, and you start to look to Psalm 29:2, which says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Give him the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And our understanding of this, listen, according to Scripture, is that the best way to do that is not to sing loudly on Sunday, but it's actually to live righteously on Monday. That's how we work. We cannot do this without righteousness. So here's how 1 Corinthians frames it. Have you seen this verse? Do you not know that your body, here's righteousness for the glory of God, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see this? We've been purchased, positioned in Jesus. So now my holiness is for the primary purpose of giving glory and honor to Jesus. These two are important. Write these next two down. The power of directional righteousness. See this. Because I think a lot of us, where we, we get left off here is we're like, okay, like we're jazzed a little bit, you know? We're like, the glory of God. I can jive with that. I want that. I want to I I live righteously. I want to obey God. I want to honor God. But how many of us, what we end up with is the dilemma of Romans 7. You ever read Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul says this? He says, 
I found this law in life, kind of like the law of gravity. He calls it the law of sin and death. He says, there's this unavoidable law, it seems, that anytime I want to do something, for some reason I just can't do it. So the things that I will to do, live righteously, I don't do. And the things that I actually hate to do, profaning God's name, I seem to be really good at that. He's stuck in this law of sin and death. It's like, God, I want to live righteously, but I don't have the power. That's, that's all that came to my mind just now. But The power. Where's the ability to do this? And we see it in, the, in that verse. I want us to see this. Notice this. He leads me. Guys, this is the hope of re- living righteous lives. Aren't you thankful that now as, as a sheep who belongs to Jesus, as a child of God, the hope of your life is not connected to your ability to follow but God's ability to lead you. That's good news. You want to know why? We're pretty lousy at following. We're pretty good at getting lost. All like sheep have gone astray on the daily. Talked about being in Georgia last week and trying to navigate my way through ATL. One thing that kept happening to me is um, um, I would accidentally disobey Siri. She gets all moody and everything. It's kind of rude, actually. Um, You ever done that? You ever made the wrong turn according to the map, and you're trying to figure out, okay, I think it's coming up, and it's like, oh, 200 feet. You're like, okay, oh, that was it. You ever done that? God is like Siri. Despite what wrong turns we take, one of the best things about the Apple Maps is this thing called rerouting. Most of my navigation is not routing, but rerouting. This is who God is as our shepherd. We get lost. We get off track, man. We make the wrong turn. We miss the turn. But he leads us still. He reroutes us. Like some of us today, the reason why we've given up on a righteous life is because we can't get over the missed turn we made. And God is saying, I've already rerouted you. And guess what? You're going to make a lot of, you're going to miss a lot of turns. It's my grace that is faithful and patient to constantly reroute you towards righteousness. I love this scripture. I, I've never even really studied this before, but Proverbs 4.18 says that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. So here's what this means. Regardless of how dark your life may feel right now, regardless of how lost you may feel right now, maybe you feel like the sun has set. From heaven's perspective, you're like a rising sun because of your shepherd. And because Jesus is your shepherd, no matter what wrong turns you make, from heaven's perspective, here's what it is. God is faithful to complete the work that he started. And so the path of the righteous, those who are in Christ, it's like the morning sun shining ever brighter. There's going to become one day, there's going to be the full light of day. I can't wait for the full light of day. We'll see Jesus as he is. We will be righteous in every way as he is. But until that day, there's this sunrise that's happening in our lives where our shepherd is leading us, listen, not from setback to setup or to setback, but from glory to glory. 
from misturn to rerouting, from misturn to rerouting. And sometimes it's, I got to take a U-turn here, right? You ever had that? U-turn and go back 300 feet. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's a matter of repentance. God, I got to come back to you. That's the power of righteousness. He leads me. He leads me. And lastly, let's close with this. It's the promise of righteousness. The promise of righteousness. I love how it's point number four, but it's really three. Yeah, I'm perfect. Not a, not a righteous uh, PowerPoint slide. Flawed. Reroute. The promise of directional righteousness. God is the faithful one to lead us, okay? Um, the good news is he tells us how he does that. He promises. Let me give you a few ways that God leads us, okay? Write these down. These are huge. God leads us with the guiding light of his word. He leads us with the enabling power of his spirit and the corrective support of his people. You got to see this. This is how God reroutes us. This is how God is going to care. If we end up as a bright, shining sun, it's because we believed God to be true with these things that he said. That his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's a guiding light. Righteousness comes through reading, studying, knowing, devouring the word of God. It's, 2 Timothy says it's sufficient to instruct us in righteousness. Okay, But then you also have the enabling power of God's spirit which gives us the power to live righteous lives. So we look at Romans 7, we're like, man, the struggle is real, Paul. I know what you're saying. I feel what you're saying. You know, I'm picking up what you're throwing down, Paul. I get that. But a lot of us, we, we don't move on past Romans 7, right? We get that there's this struggle, but Paul says in Romans 8 that in Christ, he talks about this law of the Spirit, which actually sets me free from the law of sin and death. So I have the enabling power of God's spirit, which Ephesians 5 actually says the fruit of the spirit is righteousness. Now, we tend to go to Galatians 5 for the fruit of the spirit. That's like a more, um, a more extensive list, comprehensive list of the fruit of the spirit. But in Ephesians 5, the Bible says that righteousness is a fruit of the spirit, God's enabling power. And then lastly, the corrective support of his people. God provides for us not just his word and his spirit, but it's through the community of his people. Um, I recently was reading a book by this author named Barbatzer. I'm just kidding. He's, our sound, he's running sound for us over there. Bar was talking to me this morning. We were talking about and I, I thought I would just quote him. I fix it and everything. I love this. Bar and I were talking about this idea, so I quoted Bar on this, okay? This is true. You are the most influential person in your life because no one talks to you more than you do. Think about that for a second. <laughs> Laugh at it, but then think about it. Who is the most influential person in your life? It's you. Because we're all our own unpaid counselors. We're all our own advice givers. Um, no one talks to you more than you do. So you can have a dynamic relationship with God, and you can have a heart for God's word, and you have the power of God's spirit, but if you don't surround yourself with corrective, supportive community, Proverbs says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. You become your own judge. You and we... God, God wants to be our defender. The problem is oftentimes we stand in that place, we try to be our own defender. Well, this is why I did it. 
Rather than being justified by faith, we're justified by our own defense. So this is idea of Scripture that we need more than what we know. Because sin is subtle. And often it T-bones us from our blind spots. And so this call to righteousness, this promise of righteousness, it entails the guiding light of his word, the enabling power of his spirit, the corrective support of his people. Notice I said the promise. Here's the promise. Proverbs 21, 21 says this, that he who follows righteousness and mercy will find life, righteousness, and honor. Like if you took out a couple words there, this is, the, this is my kind of verse. So simple. Ready for this? He who follows righteousness will find righteousness. And I think for a lot of us, we've been stuck in this trap of just going, man, it's just me and myself trying to figure this thing out. And we look at living an obedient life. We look at overcoming sin as like this, um, this carrot on a stick kind of like tease that God has for me. Just to keep me coming back to church or to keep me, whatever it may be. Jesus is not an imaginary shepherd. He's a real shepherd. He is the resurrected king. And he has come to reign over our lives. We want God to do so much in our nation. Let's let let God do something in us. Let's follow after righteousness. Not for our acceptance sake, not for our name's sake, not to be the kind of church that, that kind of lifts their nose up at other people, no. But because we care mostly now about the glory of God. And he wants, to be, he wants to use our lives. It's his grace that he accepts our lives. Now imagine the fact that he now says, go out and be used by me. Go into your workplace for my glory. Love your wife and love your kids for my glory. Don't believe a lie, a sexual sin. Don't say yes to the temptation for my glory. And I don't just call you to do something detached from the power to give you to do it. I enable you and empower you to live a righteous life by my spirit. All that we got to do is just come to him and say, Lord, I'm lost. I admit it. But my biggest problem is not just that I get lost, but then I try to lead myself. But you're my shepherd, and you lead me. God, thank you that you lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. Thank you that this doesn't bank on me. Thank you that you're with me still. Thank you that you love me still. Thank you that you promised to carry through what you started. That's a reason to pursue righteousness. That's a reason to follow after Jesus. It's the only reason. I want to take our moment, as we usually do, to respond to Jesus now. Let's stay in this moment. We're going to play this worship song. This is a chance for us to come to the feet of our shepherd, confess our sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And if we pray one prayer, let this prayer be this. God, lead me in paths of righteousness. Whatever you have to do to get right with God in this time, that's between you and Jesus. You can sit in your seat. You can go to the back of the room. We're going to have prayer counselors here. I'm going to invite up our prayer counselors. are going to be up here all at the altar. You might need to come to Jesus that way. Whatever it is, let's let this be a time of reflection and response to our shepherd Jesus.